So we have a new episode of Legends and Leaders, and today it's great to have Gat here. You know, you're somebody that has tried to be early on in the pioneer in so many different areas. First, with you know being early on in free web pages and email providing um, in Asia and helping bring and make that mainstream um, in a different part of the world that it wasn't you know beforehand. Um, then you went out and decided you know we need to really have white label. Um, hosting for web devices and different services and have it be secure um, and be multilingual. And with Outblaze, you you led the wave and you built out a user base of over 70 million people with that. Um, now you're, you know, you're on the Hong Kong uh, government task force for Web3 with Animoca Brands. You've been chairman there trying to be instrumental in investing, been one of the most prominent investors in the space. Um, so I'm excited to have you here, Yad, and to get into your story. Thank you for having me. Great. Awesome. So where did your passion for business and technology come from? Was it something that you had as a kid? Like, how did this kind of evolve into, hey, I want to go and create something in the space? So I grew up in Austria and Vienna to a family of musicians. And I actually studied music uh, originally, uh, just because my, 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 my mom in particular thought that'd be a good path. Classic sort of, uh, I guess, immigrant story, not the music part, <laughs> but, you know, I know, I know this, so therefore you should do this too. Uh, so I studied music in Vienna, which had nothing to do with business. And I actually grew in a surprisingly unbusinesslike environment, if you think about it, right? Uh, so I didn't wasn't exposed to that really. Uh, my father was a you know he quickly recognized that the arts wasn't a place to make much money, so he did become a businessman. And I um, although I was never involved in any of it as a as a kid, and my parents split when I was young, uh, mm -hmm. but I did see him build a uh, I guess a modest business empire in Vienna as an immigrant. So that was interesting, although I didn't really fully quite appreciate what it was. And I also saw it collapse, <laughs> right? Mm. So, 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 so that wave in itself was, was an interesting experience uh, and, and the consequences thereafter that, that sort of actually in some ways uh, engulfed our entire family. And uh, obviously uh, actually my mom and to some extent I had to sort of deal with the aftermath of that, mm. even though we weren't really involved, right? So, so if anything, one could say that that would have probably turned us off on business uh, but, uh, but, but, uh, and also remember Europe at the time, uh, and maybe even today, wasn't the most sort of uh, business-friendly kind of place. Right? And it's not just taxes, it's environments, it's attitudes to risks, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. The way I kind of got into it was, you know, I, I started um, writing um, sort of MIDI software on, on, the, on the Atari, and I shared that code on an early pre-internet service called CompuServe. And then, you know, people start, just started sending me money. And I didn't really have a bank account uh, at that time. So that was kind of my first huh. introduction. Oh, you know what? There's something there. But again, it didn't come from the lens of, okay, well, this is a business, because I didn't know what that meant. It was just more like, oh, there's money. And, you know, I could use that. And then Atari <laughs> basically sort of uh, said, oh, we like the software you wrote. And again, they discovered it on CompuServe. Like, would you like to come in? And I was a kid. And they said, that, oh, okay. Um, I guess uh, you still want the job, <laughs> basically. Uh, and, um, and I started working for them. Uh, when I was technically still a minor. So the sort of one, one thing happened at, at another, and I kind of just let sort of serendipity flow in terms of the areas that interested me. Uh, and maybe if I was to say one thing, business aside, I just kind of went with the flow as to what I felt was right. I didn't have a plan. You know, I know I know people who have like a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, you know, what, what, how much money they would need to make by that point, and, you know, like uh, that they have a family and that they must have a house and that's a... I never lived life that way. Um, and maybe because my early life as a child was turbulent, as in I didn't have stability. My mom was working mm. actually in parts of her life in East Germany, which is anything but stable, right? And I would oh, go I visit her, you know, and uh, and I would live alone for most of the time as a child because my mom is a single parent. 
plus uh, you know in the arts business you know originally as a singer and then opera director she was touring the whole time so I was actually living alone as a minor for a large part of my life which again today is unthinkable but back then was kind of normal so maybe the skills that I learned was you know a sense of independence um, a sense of sort of just go sort of you know uh, survival almost although you know it'd be unfair to say that, you know, I was like scraping for food or something, right? But but it was, but I would, you know, like generally just surviving on your own and sort of, you know, I had friends, of course, in, in Austria and just sort of going with what felt right and having sort of run with instincts as it were. And so it led to one thing to another. So my real sort of business beginnings was when I was in the US um, because Atari had brought me there and Atari went under. And so a bunch mm -hmm. of us started a business to support Atari, um, you know, sort of uh, Atari sort of uh, stranded owners. Uh, and and this business, eventually, basically, I became, a, I guess, co-owner of that business uh, yeah. because there was just you know, a few of us. Uh, I didn't quite know what that meant. Uh, so we were all supposed to have received shares and whatever, but we just worked. Um, <clears throat> and we ended up getting paid for that. And it was actually doing quite well. And then we pivoted to SGI, um, basically writing OpenGL modelers, uh, really in what was back then called VRML tools. Uh, virtual reality markup language which is essentially the VR version of HTML didn't really take off for good reasons because it was primitive but it was kind of a vision of that future we're talking now maybe like uh, early 90s like 92 um, uh, 92 93 type of time frame and that business got acquired and that's probably my first uh, sort of experience of truly getting screwed in business in the sense that oh no um, you know like uh, the business was sold and none of us really knew who got what or at least some maybe did certainly I didn't um, and, uh, <laughs> and the next thing I know, I was, I was, I was, I was, uh, basically seconded to, to SGI. I was like, oh, okay. What just happened here? Um, and, uh, and from what I understood, basically, um, you know, whatever the acquisition was, you know, I never really ended up getting anything that was meaningful, but, you know, because of, uh, that experience, I was sent to Asia and I worked in Japan and I worked in Taiwan and then I came to Hong Kong and in, in Hong Kong, I, I couldn't get uh, email. And uh, email was very good to me in the early days, and I couldn't get a CompuServe node either. So I set up one of Hong Kong's very first internet service providers. This was before CyberCity, the one that you were describing, um, called Hong Kong Online. And um, with that, essentially started my true, I guess, independent entrepreneurial career in Hong Kong. And I remember the first servers that I set up were actually uh, Next Computers and, and a bunch of BSD, uh, free BSD servers that I had set up. Uh, that, you know, those were the early days. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of serendipitous. I, I didn't have a business degree. I learned about business. I had to learn about cash flow. I brought in friends over. You know, uh, it was very difficult. Uh, but I guess I would say I was I was mostly sort of I was generally self-taught in that area. Uh, and then as time went on, you know, I had you know hired people smarter at things that that I wasn't good at, whether it was accounting, whether it was business, whether it was just associates. And over time. I just ended up absorb, absorbing various sort of skills and and, and so forth uh, to, to where it is today. So, you know, the accumulation and also the way in which Animoca Brands is built today is kind of sort of a sort of you know, history of sort of my own personal experiences, my own personal philosophies and viewpoints that I had experienced really from a child up on, until today. And I've been around the block. So, <laughs> yeah, relatively speaking. So with, with Outplays, you know, you decided that you're going to sell the managing assets of it to IBM. And I know like why it was important for them, but why, if, at that point, like, why did you think that they were the ideal partner? I mean, was it just that the offer was too good or it was a great offer? Like why, why did you feel like they were ideal and what was it like for you after selling it? So, you know, the Outplays experience was, uh, first, the way Outplays started was when I started CyberCity as a free web page provider, 
um, I, you know, I didn't have the capital, and there was no venture capital in in in, in Hong mm. Kong, Asia, for that matter, right? I think SoftBank hadn't even started yet. So anyway, there wasn't any VC funding available for for crazy little businesses like us in Asia, uh, and so I just couldn't see how it could compete with like GeoCities and so on, uh, which was basically the, the sort of the major website web uh, web page provider at the time. So you know, it made more sense after we got acquired by by Zap. To uh, so that was when Cyber City or Free Nation, as it was called, was acquired with some of that capital started outplays as a way to. No, we still believe in the internet, but maybe we should be the picks and shovels for the this wave of the internet. I still wanted to be in the business. How could I make an impact? You know, make another website? Mm, not sure. You know, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and then we were we were software developers, and and we had sort of builder backgrounds. So we basically built you know tools that allowed people to create you know, websites and email and, and all the services I had actually previously built at CyberCity for a consumer business into a B2B business. Um, and as time went on, email became the biggest part of the business. And the business really started to grow when the dot-com crash happened because mm -hmm. we built everything on Linux uh, because you uh, know, I didn't have much money. And if those who might remember in the late 90s, nobody was using Linux. Everyone was using you know, Sun Microsystems, right? And uh, mm -hmm. to some degree, Microsoft. You, because if you're building a serious, you know, like an internet business, then, you know, you can't use open source stuff. I mean, those parallels are obviously all dead, but, you know, we, we come to very similar conversations uh, today in terms of you can't use community built stuff. You got to use essentially professionally built stuff. And of course, that's all out the window. But that gave us a real competitive advantage, particularly for pricing. Uh, and the office I set it up is was right next to the computer center in Hong Kong so that when we needed spare parts, we could literally go there and buy a hard drive or so, plug it back in. That was essentially our hot swapping interface, <laughs> right? We, we didn't have, we didn't, I, I couldn't afford to put an inventory of drives or inventory of servers. So the next best thing was to put your office literally five minutes away from where everyone was buying this stuff in one chai. And so so that's kind of um, how that set up. And that business grew to where it was today. Uh, and, and I remember like late nights, we would like have outages and we'd like literally care of fairy wheel servers on, I mean, you know, back, 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 in, back in those days. When the time when IBM basically was looking to acquire us, um, it started around 2007, 2008. Um, I don't quite remember. And, you know, everything in IBM takes a while because when they want to buy something, it's not like they just like, oh, let's go. Let's, let's do something quickly. <laughs> That's not how they operate. And I remember the number of people that ended up doing due diligence on us uh, for the acquisition was between 150 to 200 people. Which wow. is roughly the number of people that I had in in all of our place. <laughs> so, so <laughs> and, and you know, because it's such a large organization, it was uh, it was a harrowing experience. Um, it was akin to, I guess, a corporate colonoscopy, but it was very very interesting to see how a sort of operation acquires a company like ours. I learned a lot in that process, but also what happens afterwards in terms of, you know, like for instance, uh, IBM doesn't like to buy companies with the entrepreneur. Because mm. I guess we're disrupt we're disruptors and we kind of cause chaos and you know whatever it is that we do it's 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 uh you know the the IBM antibody will eventually eject us so may as well not introduce us so it was it was actually quite fascinating so my role was to transition but was never to be there and that actually wow. was really interesting because you know when your mental mindset is a little bit like oh I'm acquired now I should work here it was very different it was more like uh, we're gonna acquire you and then you're out of a job right. And, um, and, you know, I mean, financially, that was okay, but mentally, it's kind of sets you up for a different path, right? You're like, okay, well, if I'm not working here, and I don't have a duty almost, right, to work here, 
right? Which is kind of more my mindset. It's like, okay, if you acquire our business and, you know, I have a duty to help out and whatever, but it was more like a release of that. It was like, you go ahead and, and, and do whatever you want to do. That kind of sort of set us up for, for what eventually became Animoca. And we had an entertainment style business uh, sort of left over that IBM didn't want in, in the sort of the early in the sort of non-mobile yeah. gaming space. And so we transitioned that essentially ultimately into, into mobile gaming. There's another story, but we just don't have time for that probably. But anyway, um, you know, the acquisition happened in part because the market was consolidating. Uh, we were competing, you know, with Gmail and Microsoft, uh, well, Google in this case. Uh, and it was either, you know, we go and try to actually raise you know, significant amounts of funding to compete, or maybe we could be part of something bigger. Uh, and IBM needed a solution too, because they were getting squeezed out with Lotus Notes on that area. Yeah. And so it was kind of a match made, a, a perfect match. And uh, and also we were the only ones left. So there was a time when we had a lot of companies competing in our space, uh, you know, like companies like Comtouch and Critical Path and a whole bunch of, you know, sort of uh, companies providing these type of third-party email services and web hosting services. And as time went on, partially because we were in Linux and the competitive advantage, they all uh, sort of um, got outcompeted either by the big platforms being Google or essentially by the fact that they, you know, it was no longer um, a price competitive. So we were kind of almost the last last, uh, last man standing. And so, you know, in terms of M&A options, we didn't have, it wasn't like we were looking, right? It wasn't like we had like a, a whole s slew of suitors saying, oh, we'd like to buy your business. <laughs> I was literally, uh, you know, IBM was like, okay, the, which companies could we acquire? Oh, there's only one. All right, fine. Let's have a chat. Um, and so and so that took a really, really long time. But in, in effect, uh, I would say, you know, we didn't, I, I would say we didn't really have a choice um, unless we had a pathway to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Sometimes I fantasize a lot about this thought that because we had messaging infrastructure, we knew everything about it, that, you know, with the advent of mobile, we had everything that could have built the next WhatsApp huh. back, back 2000, 2000, uh, 2008, 2009. But when I, so the one thing that also happens when you get acquired, you have a non-compete. Mm. So I'm not allowed, I was not allowed to build anything around messaging or enterprise technology for the next three years. So between 2009 and 2000, essentially 12 slash 13, you know, we couldn't actually enter the space in which I had built expertise on for the decades previously, in, in a sense. So who knows? Like, you know, and, and then when you saw things like, you know, sort of, you know, like um, Viber and Line and sort mm -hmm. of WeChat, they all emerged during exactly that time, right? There's a little bit that goes, oh, maybe maybe we could have done that, right? But who knows, <laughs> right? I have I don't have regrets. It's more because you know if I if I did that, then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. But it was more like um more like an interesting sort of anecdotal thought in terms of you know if this path wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have been probably able to survive staying in the classical sense of messaging. So, um, because it would have been just too competitive, so we would have to pivot, right? And sort of going to mobile messaging seemed like the most obvious path. Mm -hmm. So, why did you decide to get into Web three, and like, why were why are digital property rights so important to you? So, I think um, fundamental is that uh, we got into it first with CryptoKitties, our studio in Vancouver called Fuel Powered, ended up having a hand in helping shape it, <laughs> and its co-founder ended up becoming essentially one of the co-founders of you know what became Dapper Labs and. We became investors in the space. And really what fascinated us was the fact that we can truly own actually those digital game items. And that's mm. kind of a, you know, at least from the way I grew up, uh, sort of a gamer's wet dream to actually be able to own your digital assets and sort of own the provenance and do stuff with it, which, you know, we, we couldn't do. I mean, I bought my first virtual item. I think it was a virtual sword from a 
uh, multi-user dungeon, which is like a text-based mobile, it's a text-based uh, web-based sort of game um, called Perilous Realms. I think it was like in 91, 92, I don't remember, right? And um, and and these, the way that we traded them and the, the fact that for, you know, like in, in, in existing games, it's not allowed was kind of ludicrous to us. So we ended up um, sort of really sort of deep diving into the space. And then that's really when we started to fully understand the potential of blockchain in being able to actually give us digital property rights. And the concept on property rights is the same as it is for uh, the physical world in the sense that when you have property rights, you can have capital formation and you have businesses composed on top of these experiences. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, the fact that you can own your car is the reason that you're able to, you know, have Uber and Lyft and, and people making tires and, you know, music services for your car or like, you know, sell you sort of, you know, leather seats. That stuff is only possible because you own the car and someone else outside wants to offer you a service. And it doesn't need an intermediary to say whether you're allowed to do so. And so what happened in Web2 was that in a digital space, we suddenly started getting all these intermediaries that ended up taxing the ability to actually do business with each other for simply the right to be there. This, by the way, wasn't the early promise of the internet, right? The, the you know, Web 1.0, as it often is described, was actually very decentralized. At a website, you come to me. You do commerce, you work with me directly. Like we, we figure it out. You want my information, you go to my website. You know, we share, we share value, we share data, we do all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in Web2, we actually had to do this through Apple or through Facebook or through Google or whatever mechanism it was, we ended up going through intermediary. And in time, they started taxing that, taxing that role. And then they started monopolizing that role, right? I mean, if you remember, Facebook didn't start off charging people essentially fees for using their APIs. They just said, come on in, just come in and we'll give you access. <laughs> then all the network value and the network effects started to crew inside Facebook. You know, mm. it grew companies like Zynga most famously. And then when Zynga suddenly became too big, Facebook's like, oh, we don't think that's a good idea. And then they changed the rules overnight as you would in a country that has a dictator um, if it doesn't suit their own terms. And they basically did that. And we ourselves experienced that. Our apps got deplatformed. We were one of the biggest mobile game companies in in, in on, the, on the App Store in Apple oh. uh, by 2012. And they removed all of our apps. And we never got an official reason why. But the headlines at the time were like, oh, you know, we, we were sort of gaming the App Store and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we never knew. There was no appeals process. There was nobody oh. we could talk to. There was nothing. And the most insidious thing about sort of getting deplatformed is the censorship. Not the censorship that happens because a third party does it, but because you do it yourself. You're basically starting to limit your own freedom because you say, well, I shouldn't say anything because if I do, I might never get on the App Store. If I can never get on the App Store, actually that could be worse, right? And it's mm. it's that type of sort of sense of sort of assault on your freedom and your liberties that sort of makes you start to think about what happened to this world. So anyway, so we're, we are where we are right now and sort of what happened was is that um, the combination of those personal experiences and seeing the potential of NFTs essentially made us realize that Web3 will build the internet the way that it could have or should have in Web1 by because now the intermediary is the blockchain. So the yeah. blockchain itself becomes the mechanism in which we transact. And yes, there can be platforms like marketplaces that facilitate it, but they're not exclusive. Meaning that you know, if I wanted to launch an app on the App Store, I don't lose my customers if I leave the app store. See, that's the yeah. issue, right? When I go away from any of these platforms, who owns your customer? Who owns your followers on Instagram? Who owns everything, right? And so, so the, the irony of this is that, you know, them providing these services, actually they've colonized us. They've digitally colonized us 
um, in, in, in the most egregious way, trading and taking all of the value and giving us nothing back in return. And, um, and, and, and as probably the most anti-competitive practice out there. And it's ironic that sometimes it's described as, well, it's capitalism on overdrive, when in fact, probably their business practices are about as anti-capitalist um, as, as you can think. And I think, unfortunately, regulators have just started to cotton on to, the, to this issue, but you know it's kind of like too little too late. And so I think the antidote isn't regulation, because I think it's going to step people back even further, because, but instead, I think it's new technological innovations like Web3. So just the last question that I have yet, um, you know, what do you think it will take for Web3 to be a ma mainstream, mainstream consumer product, just be something that people use on an everyday basis? And where, where do you want to accomplish the next five to 10 years? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, um, one of the things that we've noticed that when you onboard people from Web2 to Web3, the challenge is not a technology, a technology challenge, as in, sure, it's unfamiliar to open up a MetaMask wallet and to, you know, be on, on chain and so on. But, you know, just think about how hard it is to get even to uh, uh, online. You don't think of it as hard, but, you know, buying a mobile phone and getting internet, getting connected or switching your cell phone, uh, your smartphone, it's actually a pretty lengthy process. You have to go to a mm -hmm. service provider, you have to fill out some forms, physical forms, right? You have to like do all sorts of stuff that actually takes you hours, right? And you open up, you know, the last time you tried to open a bank account, it wasn't like you just go in and just go, hey, you know, yeah. you have to show your passport. Uh, even if it's online, you have to go through KYC, AML. None of these processes are simple and fluid and easy, but they're socially accepted. Meaning that within the circle around, it's actually really like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Well, there's a hundred other people in your social circle that can help you. Okay, great. So you don't necessarily need a help desk. You ask your friends and, and so on. Again, because it's socially accepted. So we accepted that these things take time and they're a norm. And somehow they become easy or simple or user-friendly. Mm -hmm. when, when you objectively think about it, it's nothing user-friendly about it. I would argue that opening up a, a crypto wallet, for instance, to enter Web3 is far easier, far more you know, even intuitive in a natural sense than opening a bank account or going to you know, uh, your local telco provider to get a cell phone or to get a smartphone. So you can actually go online, right? Like stuff like that is actually, you know, um, you know, sort of non-obvious when you actually, but when you step out and sort of take sort of bird's eye view, you go away. Like, you know, sometimes it's always good to take the perspective of if an alien came to planet Earth and looked at our processes and said, what makes sense, right? Um, and in this case, obviously, <laughs> actually some of us things that we do that are supposed to be common sense actually don't make sense whatsoever, right? And anyway, the point I'm trying to illustrate is that it's not a, techno a technology challenge because we've solved access, for instance. We've solved sort of, you know, screens and computers. It's not VR and AR that's bringing us online, right? It's, it's uh, or make it, make it better. You know, the screens and the things that we're doing right now are sufficient. So we've discovered, at least in our sort of anecdotal um, sort of perspective, that it's a paradigm shift about financial literacy and value. So in other words, you know, and similarly to the early days of any kind of adoption, what's important is why you do it, not how or what you do, right? So if I basically understand that Web3 is a way in which I can own my digital assets for the first time and understand what ownership is, that there's a property right that is the same as your physical property rights in terms of its value formation and capital formation, then you start going, oh, okay, that's interesting. But you know, most people don't even know how their physical property rights work, right? I mean, I often run huh. into arguments around sort of, you know, why digital property rights are important. This is, well, it's not bricks and mortars. And then I ask the question, so you think you own your house because it's made of bricks? And, <laughs> you know, it takes, a, it takes a while for people to sometimes understand that it's not the physicality 
that actually makes it real in terms of your ownership. It's your government. And what is your government? Your government is maybe elected or maybe it's a dictatorship, depending what you are, and they control the ownership. And what is the story they told you that you are insured of this ownership? In a sense, it is fiction, right? I mean, even the democratic institution is a form of fiction that we commonly agree on. And there's a mechanism to protect that. But there's a reason why a democracy, a, more, a sort of a more true democracy, which is decentralized, has higher value formation because you know that you can change it. So the inflexibility of making change actually is a security in the system. If America was run by a dictator who could change anything anytime they wanted, even if that person was benevolent, its value and capital formation would be significantly lower. And we know countries that have that kind of setup where there is a discount to their earnings potential because their rules can change anytime, right? So it's, it's the same thing. And, and so we have this in the digital world where you know Apple can change the rules anytime. Facebook yeah. can change the rules anytime, which by the way, they have done like literally every few months when something uh, suits them because there's no parliamentary process. There's no discussion with the community. It's more like some, some people literally in their ivory tower go, well, we think this is good. And by the way, it suits us more. So push the button. So that's kind of why sort of um, all of this is so important. But to get people to understand why you have to go to Web3, you have to understand kind of what I just described, right? which is not the easiest part, um, because you take it for granted. Because in many ways, those aspects of our life have been outsourced. So the, in, the people who understand freedom and liberties and what gives it to us is actually one of the reasons why you know there's such a rallying call for people in, in, in crypto and in blockchain, right? They're like, you know, why do you care about this? Well, it's about my freedom and it's about you know property rights and it's about essentially my liberties. Some of them obviously are going much more in the sort of you know sort of anarchic side of things, right? Like like you know sort of screw government. Uh, we're not like that at all. We do think government is very important, <laughs> but you know there's perspectives, right? Does government so you know who does government serve? And if government serves the people, then in a way they are your proxy. Anyway, right. So I think I think that's essentially, I guess, the the American Constitution and the setup of a number of countries around the world. So I'm, so so again, it's it's within that framework. But again, how many people really understand that? Like I, I often sort of um, sort of ponder around the fact that why is it that in places where you can sort of choose to vote as opposed to are you know forced to vote, that there's barely a fifty percent turnover, um, mm. that you know a, um, sort of a, sort of um, a turn up when it comes to people voting. And that's partially because I think people don't understand or appreciate um, democracy or what it stands for, for instance, right? Um, and that in some ways it's it's almost like a civic duty. So it's it's these things that have to be brought on. And when you think about the early days of the internet, you know, when we basically were logging onto sort of a dial-up sort of internet and we were, you know, browsing on Mosaic and then eventually Netscape, there was nothing beautiful about it. And really, if you had compared it to a magazine or something physical, it was clearly, clearly inferior to the um, sort of uh, physical experience. Uh, and in some ways, that's what we're seeing today. When I go from Web 2 to Web 3, it is an inferior experience because the games aren't quite as good yet. The websites kind of look the same. The content is built on the same rails. But fundamentally, mm -hmm. what's underneath it is what's valuable. And that's the same with web, what happened in Web 1. It wasn't the fact that it looked better or felt better. It was the fact that you wanted to have freedom and access to information, democratic access to information that used to be siloed, that you could only access from books and magazines, that your thoughts and my opinions were not heard because you didn't have something like the internet and you can have that kind of sort of proliferation of, of, of information that you could have with the internet, even though it looked ugly or didn't feel that way because we weren't accustomed to the fact that we could suddenly receive information 
from someone far away in Africa or in Asia that had an opinion that actually might matter to you, right? And the same is now true for Web3, but it's now happened in terms of sort of value and essentially financial systems, because also on blockchain, all transactions happen on the same layer. In the early days of the internet, the current form of the internet, you have different layers. You know, PayPal is a layer. Financial systems is a layer that doesn't actually um, uh, operate on the same transactional system as the one that might, you might be playing the game with or the one that you're sort of trading on Amazon or whatever, or buying something or whatever. They're, they're different rails that then have to be glued together in a pretty clumsy way to operate. And a blockchain, it all happens on the same chain, which is more efficient, the security is embedded. It also makes it simpler, meaning that if you're a developer, you can actually develop on a system that has all of it, as opposed to basically, uh, you know, with the security embedded in it, as opposed to needing multiple experts to put it together. So, so all these factors actually make Web3 accelerate. And the end user needs to understand that paradigm. And with that comes a form of financial literacy. So the big thing we think that will actually onboard people more on the sort of why is financial literacy. The more financially literate we make people, the more they'll understand why Web3 is important. Sometimes Web3 is described as the, the internet of value, um, um, you know, or blockchain, you know, being you know able to be a store of value. And I think there's a reason behind that because the financial aspect is deeply embedded. Um, and you know, if you understand more about how money works, if you understand more about how value works and how your property rights works, then actually you will you will absolutely demand that from the digital context, and Web three is the only way. So that's kind of I think um, what needs what uh, what needs to happen. And we saw this in early forms of Web three games, um, which is what we were very focused on, uh, like with Axie Infinity, for instance, in the Philippines, and uh, also we did this with um, you know um, Open Campus, uh, basically to try to help push. Web3 education broadly as well, for all the reasons I mentioned. So we think it's essentially more of a sort of a mental mind shift, a sort of adoption sort of challenge, uh, which we can do with storytelling and gaming and so on, uh, rather than necessarily, here's better tools. I mean, tools will always improve, but that's not the reason you move from one one place to the other. Well, yeah, I think that's all the questions that I had. Um, you know, I think you definitely have the right approach in terms of being able to get mass adoption and making people understand this and showing really what the value is with Web3. And you've helped so many people get started in this space and build great companies. So I'm excited to see what you continue to do and wish you much success. Thank you so much.